Acts of the Apostles. And if Marie Shelton were here, we'd say that's uh, page uh, 1780 in the Ryrie Study Bible. But uh, let me start with a question. What does the uh, number 96.4% mean to you? You're the birthday girl. Shiloh, what do you think? What does 96.4% mean? You're 96.4% mature now? Maybe. Possibly. What do you think? Well, that's kind of a trick question, but we're going to attempt to finish the 27th chapter of Acts today, and there are 28 chapters in the book. So if you look just at the chapter content, at the end of this message, we will have completed 96.4% of this book, and we're going to uh, continue the voyage through the book of Acts today as we look at Paul's vexing voyage from Caesarea toward Rome. We won't quite get him to Rome today, but we will sail right along with him. But let's say a couple of words about the book of Acts, just as we anticipate landing the plane in a few weeks. The book of Acts is actually the second volume of a two-volume work. Uh, the Gospel of Luke was the first volume, and the book of Acts is the second volume. And if you, if we took the time to look at the first couple of verses of the Gospel of Luke, and the first couple of verses of the book of Acts, you can see that uh, Luke is anticipating a second work. The, the Gospel of Luke actually talks about uh, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the book of Acts talks about the next uh, three or decades or so of the expansion of the church from Jerusalem. That's interesting, the way those books are knitted together, uh, because... The, the book of Acts we're studying starts where the Gospel of Luke ended. Volume 1 ends in Jerusalem with the ascension of Christ. Sometimes we throw these terms around, but, you know, we have uh, the death of Christ on Good Friday, three days later the resurrection, literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection of Christ. What happens 40 days after that? The ascension. Christ physically ascends to heaven. The Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Christ. Volume 2, the book of Acts, starts with the ascension of Christ. So he's knitting these two books together very specifically in, a, in an interesting way because when you look at the uh, the Gospel of Luke, it's all about that last trip to Jerusalem, the Passion Week, the death, resurrection, and then the ascension 40 days later just outside of Jerusalem. Gospel of Luke is like an inverted spiral uh, to Jerusalem. Now what's important about Jerusalem? It's the capital of institutional Judaism. And, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you know, all this truth, all this information led to this institution, which had unfortunately gone totally corrupt. Large bureaucracies tend to go corrupt, even religious bureaucracies. But Luke looks like that, Stan, okay? Boom, Jerusalem. What does the, using that same graphic idea, what does the book of Acts look like? It starts in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, where the ascension happens. It's an outward spiral. Where does it end up? Where's Paul headed? To Rome. What's important about Rome? It's the capital of the world, man. It's the capital of the Western political, economic, military, industrial complex, if you could call it that, in the first century. And so, uh, among other things, Luke, under inspiration, is saying... Uh, that this gospel of Christ trumps 
everything else and no human opposition, um, no spiritual opposition. And today we're going to see the mother of all uh, cyclonic storms on the Mediterranean. No natural disaster is going to stop the progress of the gospel according to God's purpose and his plan. And 2,000 years later, you know, Jesus says uh, at the beginning of Acts to his uh, followers, he says just before the ascension, uh, I want you to be witnesses here in Jerusalem and all Judea, the region around us, and Samaria, the region around that, and unto the uttermost parts of the what? The world. And here we've got uh, the Wanzers. What, what could be better than to celebrate your anniversary right here at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship? You know, Memorial Day weekend, a lot of people, opportunity to travel. We just sent multiple people to Haiti, but man, we got a wonderful group today. I'm glad I'm here. But yeah, uh, uttermost parts of the world. I mean, Ken, when Jesus says that 2,000 years ago to his guys, they didn't even know Oklahoma existed. So Carl Buchanan is part of the ongoing fulfillment of what Jesus talks about at the beginning of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts doesn't really ever stop. But today... As we see Paul begin his voyage to Rome, we're going to learn the lesson that uh, sometimes God does not get us out of storms. So what are we supposed to do, Sarah, when God doesn't get us out of a storm? Sometimes you have an issue and you go to the doctor and they fix it or it's not as bad as they think it is or it wasn't there at all and they take it away and that's fine. Sometimes it doesn't go away. Sometimes there's no easy way out. When God does not get us out of storms, how should we react? We're going to learn some important lessons about that because as Pam Cox once told me, every believer she knows is either in a storm, just coming out of a storm, or just about to go into a storm. That's a paraphrase of what her pastor told her once, but uh, (laughs) she actually said it better than he said. Yeah. Well, talking about storms, we do have enemies foreign and domestic, and uh, we're supposed to love our enemies, but we also have the right of self-defense. And uh, people like this and so many others uh, help us. We've got Tom Rickert. In just a nutshell, tell us about Tom Rickert, uh, Ray. Uh, they are yeah. Is he a master sergeant? Or uh, sergeant for fun? Hawaii. I didn't know they did stuff like that. Yeah. Well, uh, we appreciate, tell him that we appreciate his service. And, uh, I'd asked Ray to give me that picture a few months ago. I finally got it, so he popped it in there. And it, I didn't want your parents to think when they were here last week, hey, you just popped that picture of our kid in there because we, he heard we were coming. Cause I didn't even know they were, I didn't know they were coming, you know, but. But if I got points with that, I'll take them, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're busy, you know, I know that. But Okay, Stan, will you uh, lead us in prayer? Let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word. This is a long chapter. I'm going to just look at some of the highlights and structure it for you. Uh, there are reasons for the details, but most of us aren't uh, probably uh, sailors, technically. But the details are all very important. A lot of stuff has been written about that. But we're going to try to summarize a lot of good stuff here in about 40 minutes after we pray. So uh, stand, pray that that happens, and let's pray for those who uh, protect and service, and not just in the military, but also I'm thinking of peace officers and firefighters also. Okay. Thank you, Stan. Uh, let me remind elders and deacons, 
immediately after first hour, we need to have uh, a short meeting. And I think it's just easier, and I remember better, to get started if we kind of meet over here. And if we need to do something in private, we'll just hide in the closet or something. But uh, try to remember that and so we can move on to the second hour. Yeah, we're, we're coming to the end of our study book of Acts. And uh, I'm not going to go over the entire memory aid, but a cool way to remember the 28 chapters, what is emphasized in each one, is rem- remembering this saying, Jesus is alive as head of his bride. And each one of those letters, J-E-S-U-S, for instance, aligns up with the first five chapters. J, Jesus ascends to heaven from outside of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, establishment of the New Testament church, day of Pentecost. Uh, S, salvation of a lame beggar. Peter and John heal a guy at the uh, gate outside the temple, and boom, it really sends a shockwave through Jerusalem because everybody knows that guy. They've seen him for decades. Uh, 4, chapter 4, unleashing a persecution against the church. Uh, five, sin in the church. And the thing worse than external persecution is internal corruption in the church. And a lot of times we shoot ourselves in the foot. So you can go through that, and we'll, we'll do that a couple more times before we finish the book of Acts in a couple of weeks. But let's fast forward. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Uh, let's look at his bride here because, uh, those are the most relevant chapters as far as our context. Back in chapter 21, after the third missionary journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem, and while he's worshiping in the temple complex, a riot breaks out because he's been identified as a anti-Jewish zealot, uh, and the Jewish folks don't like him, at least the leaders don't like him, so they literally try to beat him to death. Uh, but Roman soldiers, the Romans have occupied the region for almost 100 years. They want peace and quiet and no riots. So they actually rescue Paul. They're not sure who's guilty, but they kind of take him into custody. And as they're walking him up the steps out of the melee, uh, Paul asks for opportunity to address the crowd. What anybody else would have seen as a group of uh, murderous thugs, Paul sees as an audience for him to share the gospel. So chapter 22, I, his bride, H-I, Hebrews riot, I, instruction in the temple area. Paul just has a, a... a captive audience, and he shares his testimony uh, in chapter 22. Chapter 23, uh, by the way, once the Romans take him away from the scene, they're going to use some enhanced interrogation techniques to find out whether he did anything wrong, and they're apparently about to you know, give him 39 lashes, and he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and you know, technically uh, you can't do that to me. So he mentions his citizenship, and that changes a lot of things. The next chapter, the next day, the Romans who aren't into Judaism have no idea why the Jews hate Paul, this Jewish guy. So they take Paul to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious supreme court. made sense to them. And what happens there, Steve? There's a mini-riot breaks out there. When Paul mentions the resurrection, half of the group that doesn't believe in such uh, fairy tales attacks Paul, and the other group, the Pharisees, that aren't exactly born again, they believe in the resurrection, so they start arguing about that. So the Romans again have to protect him. So Hebrews ride in Jerusalem against Paul, try to beat him to death. He instructs them from the steps leading away from the temple area. The Sanhedrin the next day sizzles against Paul, his Savior, and the gospel. And then a bride. In chapter 24, we have Paul taken from Jerusalem, the religious capital of the world, to Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region, because now he's a Roman prisoner, and 
there's a conspiracy afoot to kill Paul in Jerusalem. So they take him out of town at night with overwhelming force, get into the capital, uh, and he appears before the Roman governor, Felix, uh, charged by the Jewish uh, uh, big shots who've come into town to charge Paul as a danger to Roman authority and the Jewish uh, piety. And the governor does what a lot of politicians does do. He decides not to decide. He didn't want to offend the the, the uh, Jewish leaders, but he knows that Paul's being ra- railroaded. So Governor Felix just kind of puts Paul in a holding tank for two years, and that stands for bondage in Caesarea. Uh, R, Roman Governor Festus. I thought Felix was the governor. Well, he was governor for two years. You can look it up in your secular history. And in 50, 59, earlier that year, we have a new governor, Festus. He reviews the case before Paul comes to the same conclusion. Paul's done nothing wrong under Roman law, but the Jewish leaders don't like him, so we're going to have to uh, kind of tread lightly. Now, in connection with all of that, uh, Festus says, you know what, I'm just going to send you back to Jerusalem again. And Paul says, no, I don't want you to do that. I can't get a fair hearing in Jerusalem, plus they're going to kill me on the way. So I, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. Okay, I appeal to Caesar. He plays the ultimate trump card. So as the governor says, you've appealed to Caesar, even, even though I don't think you've done anything wrong, and I don't think there'd be anything wrong sending you to Jerusalem, to Caesar, to Rome, you're going to go. Now, it just so happens the new governor gets a courtesy call from one of the regional kings that actually is under the governor in the way it was set up, King Agrippa II. And King Agrippa says, tell me about this Paul guy. And in fact, I want to hear his story. And so what we saw last week was a final unofficial hearing where King Agrippa and the governor interact with Paul, and all that ends this way. Look at chapter 26, verse 30. The king, King Agrippa II, and the governor, Governor Festus, uh, they stand up. Bernice, who's the king's sister, has a whole long story about all that, but we'll go there. And those were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside away from the, uh, uh, the theater where they're having this big meeting interacting with Paul, they begin talking to one another, kind of ironically enough. Hey, this man hasn't done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to, the, to Festus, the king said to the governor, you know, it's crazy, but this man Paul might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But now that's happened. The uh, wheels are turning. We've got to send him. And I said last week, hey, Paul was going to Rome one way or another. The Lord had appeared to him back in 2311 and said, in the same way you've solemnly testified for my cause in Jerusalem, you're going to go and do it in Rome too. All this other stuff has uh, spe- specified the how, but uh, the where is already set and it's going to happen. Now we're going to pick up with that this week in how do we get Paul to Rome from Caesarea, from uh, Israel to Italy. Well, look at uh, verse uh, 1 through 5. You know what? I was going to do that, but I forgot. I forgot it two weeks in a row. That's dumb. Okay, <laughs> uh, look at uh, verse 1 through 5. So when it was decided that we, now what do you know about we? Not he, but we. The author, the human author of this book is actually there on that boat. We know him as Dr. Luke, M.D. Apparently Luke and Aristarchus, two of Paul's friends, Roman citizens were allowed to take two servants or two friends and associates with them on such trips. Such legal trips. Some, some of them would take both their lawyers, you know. But Paul takes his doctor and a friend from Thessalonica, 
And so we've got one of those we sections, W-E, where the author of the book is an actual direct eyewitness. So when it was decided that we, Paul and the group that went, including the author here, Luke, would sail for Italy, that's where Rome's located, was then, still is, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some of the other prisoners. Now, these other prisoners would have been a sad lot. Some of these guys would have been taken as probably condemned felons to the Colosseum, or the Colosseum really wasn't finished until 73, but they already had gladiatorial events all over the town. So these guys may have ended up fighting gladiators or wild animals or something, these other prisoners. Uh, under the direction of a centurion, uh, a high-ranking sergeant over 100 people of the Augustan cohort named Julius, right? And embarking on an Adramatean ship, which is a coastal vessel. You can't really get out in the center of the Mediterranean with a ship like that. So that's not going to be good enough to get them all the way from Caesarea to Italy. We're going to need to get a new ship sooner or later, which was about to sail for the regions along the coast of Asia. And today we'd say the coast of Turkey, because that's the way the term was used then. We, again, Luke is right in the center of the action there, put out uh, to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. We read about him back in chapter 20. He came along with Paul to Jerusalem to help with the financial contribution Paul had raised and distributed in Jerusalem. So we've already seen him mentioned earlier in the text. The next day we put in at Sidon, which isn't really that far from Caesarea, just due north on the coast. And Julius, the centurion, who's kind of keeping an eye on Paul and the other prisoners, treated Paul, a Roman citizen not found guilty of anything yet, but who's appealed to Caesar, with consideration not unusual under the circumstances at all, and allowed him to get off the boat and go see his friends, the Christians in Sidon, and receive care. Now, I'm sure they sent at least one soldier, uh, Regina, with Paul to make sure he came back to the boat. But that wasn't unusual for somebody with that uh, rank as he had. From there, we put out the sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, what we're going to do today is look at the yellow part of that slide. We're going to see uh, this voyage towards Rome, and we're going to break it down into two pieces. Before the shipwreck, and I'm kind of giving it away, Nancy, we're going to have a shipwreck, okay? Before the shipwreck, and then the shipwreck, and then... Lord willing, next week we'll look at, uh, they end up shipwrecking on an island called Malta, just south of Italy. Uh, we're going to see God's man on Malta, uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. And then in two weeks we'll look at Rome, sweet Rome. We finally get to Rome, and that's where the book's going to end, okay? But these are real places, real people, real events. And so I want you to notice on this map, please, uh, you know, this is where all the events of the gospel take place, just in that uh, area between the uh, Sea of Galilee and the, the Dead Sea there, basically, right? But there's Jerusalem, there's the Roman capital, Caesarea, so they sail, sail to Sidon and they keep going. But we're going to go, eventually, our ultimate destination, right, is Rome, Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy, as they say in Texas. Whoop. Too fast. Now, there's a lot of, I know uh, David Demerson is a, uh, as a world-famous sailor and a deep thinker, is wondering, what does all that mean on that map, right? Earthquake. <laughs> well, yeah. We're, gonna, we're told we're in a Uaquilo U- U- uh, storm, which is kind of a cyclonic storm, which actually comes from one direction, but it goes around. So they're probably all over the place. I think that's the 
Uh, map makers attempt to tell you they're in the middle of a storm, and we're not sure exactly where they went. In fact, I think they probably drifted further north than that says. But that's just kind of a schematic. It's not, you know, uh, it's not necessarily perfectly accurate. But yeah, so we're we're sailing toward Rome. This is with a shipwreck, and we've kind of gone from uh, Caesarea right there to Sidon, and then we're going to end up in Myra, and we've got to get a new boat, because the boat we've got now is not going to get us all the way to Italy. There ain't no way. Uh, look at verse 5. And when we had sailed through of the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lysa. These are all real places. Uh, trust me, the skeptics have tried to pick apart Paul uh, Luke's descriptions of cities and titles for the governor governmental officials and all this stuff, and it all lines up. Uh, in the early 20th century, there were really uh, a lot of critics of Paul in the scholarly circles because we didn't really have enough data to confirm some of his stuff, and he was kind of seen as guilty until innocent. But if we found more data and dug up more stuff and information, it all lines up. Uh, so that doesn't mean skeptics are going to believe the essential truth of the text, but the details all line up uh, as if written by an eyewitness. Although one of the commentators who apparently had naval experience said, when you read this voyage account, it's obvious as an eyewitness a guy in the first century describing what happened, but he's a landlubber, he's not a sailor, because he uses non-technical terms <laughs> for these nautical things. And so I thought that was pretty cool that that kind of got picked up. Okay, so we're, we're, we need a new boat. And so it just so happens, that's what happens, verse 6 through 8, we're going to go from Myra to Fair Havens on Crete, but look what happens. There in Myra, uh, in the kind of the underbelly of Turkey today, we'd call it, uh, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. Now, what's an Alexandrian ship? A ship from Alexandria, Egypt. It would have been a huge vessel, as big as they could make back then, which was a grain ship. I didn't know this. I'd forgotten it. But Egypt was the granary of Rome, was the title. And they had this huge network of big ships that were primarily cargo ships, but they took passengers too. We got 276 people in this boat. It's a big boat. Uh, i never forget the time we were in Pensacola years ago, and Debbie and I got to, from a distance, see one of the uh, U.S. Naval aircraft carriers. Have you ever seen an aircraft carrier in person? I mean, you cannot believe how huge this thing is, number one, that human beings built it, and most importantly, it floats. I mean, it just takes your breath away. Now, this ship wasn't nearly that big, but it was huge, even by our standards today. So it's a very big ship. There's no problem unless you run into one of these uh, once-in-a-century kind of storms, which they run into. Then you have problems. But they found a ship big enough. Notice it says they found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. So it, it's that's good because they're going to Italy, right? And he, that is the sergeant who's assigned with getting these prisoners, including Paul, to Italy slash Rome, put us aboard it. Uh, when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty, because the winds are contrary, uh, and or not at all a couple of days. It, it really wasn't windy yesterday on the golf course, was it, Jamie? That's weird. That never happens. You know? uh, and had arrived at Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. So, we don't know a lot of these. Uh, it's not like Cincinnati and uh, you know New York City, and these cities are not as familiar to us. But some of us have been there. 
2010, we flew into Athens and we got on a boat. It wasn't an Alexandrian boat, but we went across the Aegean eventually to, to Ephesus and then we went down to Rhodes and we went to Crete. But Paul goes underneath here and we went on, on the northern side and then we went back to Athens and some of us got in a, a bus and me and Mike, I remember looking down the Isthmus of Corinth right there and went to Sparta and went across there and went back around. It was awesome. So these are real places and he's giving you the details of, of, of the logistics. We're in a boat that gets us part of the way, but we need a bigger boat. Now, you know, since uh, some of you like to critique our maps here, maybe there's a better map for you. I actually like this one better because it doesn't have that wavy line, you know. But trust me, it wasn't a straight thing. It was, it was kind of like that. It kind of looked like a John Madden diagram. But we're all over the place here. But we eventually end up from Myra to Nidus, up underneath what we call Crete. And then the, the problem was, you know, today with modern ships and stuff, maybe this isn't as big of a deal. But the problem was uh, basically from late September through March or even early April, the Mediterranean for the ancient was pretty much a no-sail zone. And they're right on the edge of this, and we're going to see there's kind of a debate about this. And Paul, who's done a lot of sailing himself, three missionary journeys, he's going to kind of give his opinion on what should happen before he gets some direct divine revelation later. But look at verse 9 and following. We're going to talk about uh, going from the underbelly of Crete just trying to get across to the western point of Crete to spend the winter because the, the weather is too bad to continue. It's too late in the year to continue. But look what happens. Okay, When considerable time had passed there at Lycia, up underneath uh, the center of Crete, and the voyage was now dangerous. Now, we're now kind of in uh, late September, almost October. Uh, in fact, I guess we are in October, uh, as I'll point out here in a minute. Since even the fast, the only fast in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement, the only required fast, and that was on October 5th, 59 A.D. that year. So this is sometime early in October 59, so we're already in the no-sail period for the most part. There could be exceptions, and some of these old salts maybe had sailed during that period and made it, but it's not generally considered to be safe. Paul began to admonish them. This is just based on his own gut and his own experience, and he said, and he's a Roman citizen, so he's got some cred. Men, I perceive the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only the cargo, the grain, but uh, also of our lives. You know, this is just too dangerous. You know, this is, this is not good. The, the wings are icing. I don't think we should take off kind of thing. But the centurion listened to Paul, but he was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship. These guys, you had to have a lot of guts to have a shipping, to have this kind of a job in the first century. They're kind of like test pilots for NASA. I mean, I greatly admire these guys. You know, Chuck Yeager and these people are amazing individuals, but they just do all kinds of crazy, nutty stuff. I mean, they're risk takers. These guys are like test pilots. Plus, they've got another. Donna, why do you think they definitely want to finish the voyage as fast as possible? More money, yeah. And and they, they think they can do it. You know, all these these guys always think they can do it, right? So uh, the centurions listening to Paul saying, yeah, that's a conventional wisdom. We'll just stay for the winter. I'm, you know, I have to fill out some paperwork. I might get in trouble because it kind of we didn't start soon enough. But that's okay. It would be better than being killed out in the middle of the Mediterranean. But the centurion ultimately was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor there at Lassie was not suitable for wintering. 
the majority had reached the decision to put out to see from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix. Now see, somebody's going to say that's a contradiction in the Bible because they're going to say Phoenix is in the middle of the desert. There ain't no sea there. No water there. <laughs> you got to interpret the Bible in the time, in the context in which it's written. We're not talking about Phoenix, Arizona, people. I mean, come on. And uh, I love Phoenix, you know. But uh, they're talking about going from here to here. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about Arizona, okay? So, and that doesn't look like, you know, on a map, that's only that far. So what's the problem? But it's, it's harder than it looks, right? So, boom. Well, let's go back there. Yeah, verse 12. So we really need to go to a better harbor to spend the winter if we're going to stay there. So basically, even though he's hearing, let's go. Uh, let's just move the ship. It's not that far. We'll be fine. Uh, harbor on Crete facing southwest and northwest. I think that's an idiom like raining cats and dogs or the back of my hand, talking about kind of two facets. And, and the plan is, okay, we'll just spend the winter there. That's good. So they're not going very far. I mean, it's just a little, that, Jamie, it's just that far. It's not that far, okay? On the map. But we we all know that's a flawed map. Let's go back to the good one. Okay. It's still not very far. You know, just saying that. Uh, when a moderate south wind came up, came up, supposing that uh, they'd, they'd uh, be able to attain their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore, not taking any chances. But before very long, boom, here comes the cyclonic storm of the, of the century, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uraquilo, and this is kind of a standard phenomenon that happens from time to time, but I think the one described here was a, was a perfect storm, kind of a really, really, really bad one. And when the ship was caught in it, they're just going to the shore trying to get to Phoenix, it blows them away from the shore and they can't get back, uh, and could not face into the wind, we, we gave into it. Notice, uh, all hands on deck here, Steve, kind of a thing. Whatever even the landlubbers can do, they're getting everybody as possible to try to get get back to the shore, but it's not possible. We allowed ourselves to be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clada. Uh, my maps don't even have Clada on there, but it's a small little island just due south, uh, about halfway between La Cie and Phoenix, and it just lines up exactly with the geography. So they thought they were able to get in the shallows there and kind of control it. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control to keep it from probably breaking up. And after they'd hoisted it up, and by the ship's boat, by the way, is the life lifeboat, the small lifeboat. Uh, after they'd hoisted it up, filling with water, it kind of bring them down. Uh, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. They'd actually run cables around the bottom of the ship all the way along to hold it together. It's called frapping, if you can believe that. They had the mechanism to do that just to keep the timbers from the pressure of just the ship exploding, as it were. So they just kind of hold it together, not to make any time, but just to kind of survive through the storm. And they're fearing they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. Now, the shallows of Sirtis were these, uh, just off the coast of Libya here, still are, but they're not as big of a problem now, and people just avoid them. But they're just shallows, and people could, if you got drifted down that way, you just kind of run aground so far out, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't survive very long because there's nothing to eat nothing to drink, etc. So at first they're going due south. That's the one thing we know about direction as far as that's concerned. Uh, they let them sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day as we, again we, Luke's involved in this. Everybody's all hands on deck to make this thing work. We're being violently storm-tossed. They, 
Now, that's Luke says, we were being driven, we'd help with some of this stuff, but now we've got the pros begin to jettison the cargo. I always love the term jettison. I remember uh, watching the Mercury space uh, launches, you know, as a kid, and they would jettison uh, the heat shield at one point, you know, whatever. I thought that was pretty cool at the end there. But, uh, yeah, jettison the cargo, get rid of the cargo. So notice, uh, Sarah, they've got the experts, the they people, throwing the cargo overboard because they know what is the least usable. They're going to, you know, throw away the least usable stuff first. Uh, so you got you to know what you're throwing away. We need those people to come to our garage and help us, but that's something else. Uh, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. I mean, they're getting rid of almost everything. Uh, since neither sun nor stars appear for many days. Now, you might think, what's the problem? You know, just get your phone out. You can figure out where you are. Not going to work, you know. Not, not going to work. This must have been really terrifying. Can you imagine that? I mean, I've been on two cruises, loved them, but one afternoon, I almost felt like I had an upset stomach. And so I, I prayed about it and went to the buffet and I was fine. But, you know, uh, I mean, these people are in the fight of their lives and uh, it goes on for 14 days. It's, it's crazy. And that's not unheard of, by the way, even to this day, that they have storms that move around but don't dissipate for several weeks. Um, since neither sun nor stars appear for many days and no, no small storm. That's uh, like totes, you know, it's, it's, it's no big deal, no problem. You know, we affirm something by uh, denying it's negative. Uh, no small storm, meaning a huge storm is assailing us, like the storm of the century. From then on, basically, uh, you know, they've all consigned themselves to the fact we're not going to make it. We'll, we'll, you know, lose as slowly as possible here, but all hope, human hope, of our being saved was gradually abandoned. They're fighting, they're fatigued, they haven't been eating <laughs> That'll do it to you. They're not sleeping very well, obviously. When they've gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst. And so Paul kind of stands up, and just by the virtue of his uh, character and his knowledge, he just kind of kind of rallies the troops here. And look what he says here. It's interesting. Uh, and you've got to bless his heart. Now, sometimes, you know, as Protestants, we don't believe that certain really good Christians or saints and the rest of us are just average. We believe that every believer is a saint because we've been positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation. That's why Paul refers to the Corinthian Christians as saints, and we know a lot of them didn't live really great moral lives, at least when he wrote the letters to them. But uh, here, notice, uh, sometimes I think Paul wrote 13 New Testament books, 13 out of 27 and, you know, I've, I've studied Paul so intently for so long and, like, diagram the sentences in Greek. You almost feel like you know the guy personally. And I know a bunch of us who kind of feel that way are going to bump him into heaven and he's going to be different than we pictured him in his personality, you know. But uh, sometimes even people like me tend to kind of put Paul on a pedestal like he can do no wrong. But you got to love the guy. Although he's going to say some good stuff here, he can't resist the temptation basically to say, I told you not to leave. I told you this was going to be a problem. Don't forget that. I mean, so I try not to. Number one, I'm very seldom in the position where I can even say that. But when I am, I generally try not to do it because I hate it when people do it to me. But just so you'll know. That's another thing I don't want you to do to me. Okay, write that one down. But uh, look what he says. So they're demoralized, and he feels like, hey, i, I got to stir up the troops here. So Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete. I'm not even going to Phoenix, right? 
and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. Pastors do that all the time. You know, it's always too early to give up on God. It may be time to give up on your dream to become a brain surgeon. I had to give up uh, my dream of becoming an NBA champion and a male model just in the last couple of months. I've been holding on. I knew I could do it. But uh, it's sometimes we've got to give up on stuff we're dreaming, stuff that we want, stuff that we think we need. But it's always too early to give up on God. So he's saying, uh, keep up your courage. Don't panic. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. The ship's going down, but we're all going to survive. For this very night, an angel of the Lord. He doesn't say that routinely. This doesn't happen often to him, but he gets a direct message saying, you're going to survive. Everybody's going to survive if they stay on the ship, but the ship's going down. Okay. Uh, the message the, from the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. There's a VIP on that boat, and he's going to survive. And you know what? Sometimes the world doesn't appreciate how much benefit they get from people like Paul or Stan Heath or uh, Ken Wanzer or uh, Kay Massey in the world. You know, we're salt and light. And by I tell Daryl, he's got his new job. You know, and uh, I said, "Tell me about the people you're working with. Where are they coming from spiritually?" And I said, and he didn't, he didn't want to say anything. He didn't want to say anything negative. So I said, oh, they're coming from all over the map. And he said, no, they're really all in the same place on the map. <laughs> As a paraphrase. Uh, really? Okay. Well, I said, you know what? Uh, as the new guy on the, on the job, your job's not to preach to him. You're not to be self-righteous. But just do your job. Do it well. And we do have that one little issue, Eric, you know, you're working on, right? Do your job, do it well, and all you got to do is not cuss and not tell dirty jokes, and pretty soon they're going to figure out there's something different about you. You don't have to say anything. Hey, I'm too holy to hear your jokes. You just don't. And some of them are pretty funny. It's the problem with dirty jokes. I mean, some of them are really funny. So you got to, but you can't, you know, let them know you, you think it's so it's funny because you can't. If you can't use it from the pulpit, don't tell me the joke. That's just. Uh, I've had deacons tell me jokes I can't use in the pulpit. And not Mike, but some of the other ones. <laughs> and yeah, you talk about moral dilemmas, you know, because most of the stuff I use isn't that funny. So, But anyway, yeah. So anyway, Paul's saying, look, cheer up, hold on. Uh, the ship will go down, but we're all going to survive. Don't be afraid, Paul, because you're going to stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted with you all, all y'all, those who are sailing with you, you're all going to survive. Therefore, Paul says, keep up your courage, man, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. That's what's going to happen. We're going to have a wreck, but we're all going to survive. Okay? So that's before the wreck, before the shipwreck. You ready for the wreck, Steve? Because it's coming. Okay, look at verse 27. Uh, but when the 14th night of battling this storm came as we've been driven across the Adriatic Sea, anything between Italy and Greece, that whole channel thing coming down as far south as Crete could be called the Adriatic at that point. We use it a little bit more specifically now. About midnight, the sailors, the old salts, the the crew, began to surmise they're approaching some land, and so they took some soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms deep, and a little further, 15, so we're getting closer to some kind of land, 
And fearing we might run aground somewhere out there on the rocks, the sailors cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. Okay? Paul's praying, they're wishing. <laughs> okay? Uh, that was the Earth Day, Easter. I mean, really? Earth Day? Come on now. Uh, let's be good citizens of the earth. Let's love the earth. You know, let's be good uh, stewards, of course. But uh, I don't worship Gaia. I worship uh, the Creator, you know, not the creation. But as the sailors, watch this, as the sailors, the crew, were trying to escape, they're pretty sure they're going to run aground. Paul said they're going to run aground somewhere. So they're going to take the lifeboat and get out while they're getting good. They're going to try, they're trying to get away. Uh, and had let down the ship's boat. Remember, we pulled it up earlier. Uh into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. We're going to go down and do some maintenance, okay? But they're really wanting to get away from the disaster. Uh, Paul said to the centurion hey, and the soldiers, unless those men remain in the ship, we're all going to die. You know, it was all or nothing thing. Paul's going to get to Rome, and if everybody stays on the ship, they make it. And if they don't, they're not. So he's afraid that everybody else but him is going to die. So he says, unless you stay on the ship, you're not going to make it. Then the soldiers, not the crew, the crew's down in the boat, cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. You can't, you can't do that. You know, they didn't get in the boat, of course. I said that wrong. Verse 33. First meal on board. Uh, there's work to do. They're gonna, they're gonna crash and have to get to the island. So Paul says, we're gonna have to force ourselves to eat something here. Uh, until the day was about to dawn, went from midnight to dawn. Paul was encouraging them all to take some food saying, this is the 14th day that you've been constantly watching going without eating, having taken nothing. You can function for 14 days. I don't want to try it. But they're seasick. They're panicked. There's not, it hasn't been easy to prepare a full, full meal. I never forget, uh, after Marie got the, got promoted to heaven, you know, um, um, Bill's daughter, help me. What's Bill's daughter? Bill Shelton's daughter's name. Tanda. Yeah. Came in and was down here some with him. And, uh, she told the story how frustrating it was to deal with Bill because, uh, she was driving Bill out and going to take him to lunch, and she wanted to like go to a fast food thing, and so he said, "Let's go to." She said, "Let's go to Burger King." And he said, "No, I want a plate lunch." Right? <laughs> What's a plate lunch? I've heard that title, but I'm not sure what it means. But yeah, they ha- they haven't had a plate lunch for two weeks, and Paul knows, hey, even though God's going to save them from dying, they've got work to do, surviving the wreck and getting to shore. They're going to have to either swim or hold on to wreckage. You get there, it's going to be a lot of work. So you might say, Paul could say, hey, God said he's going to save us all, so we don't need to eat anything. I've got enough faith for all of us. We'll be fine. But Paul realizes they're going to need some calories. They're going to need some energy. Uh, Cooper does that to you. You know, when he, Cooper's run a while, you know, once he gets his water, he says, i got, I got energy now. You know, water gives him energy, you know, which is probably true. But he's encouraging them, hey, it's been 14 days. We basically had a, had a proper meal, haven't really had a break. We're functioning on adrenaline here, superhuman stuff. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. But this will be for your benefit. For not a hair from the head of any, any of you will perish. That's just an idiom meaning we're all going to survive physically. And having said this, he himself took bread and gave thanks. This isn't the, this isn't a mass. I've heard People say this was a mass on board ship. It's not a mass. It's not a Lord's Supper. He's just eating something and encouraging them to eat something, whether their stomachs feel like it or not, and broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us, looks probably as the ship's doctor is passing out some of the food as a good servant, 
And he's a numbers guy, so he counts everybody, crew and passengers. And there's 276 people on that ship. So that's a pretty big ship. We're not talking about a canoe here or a dinghy or anything like that. And when they'd eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship even more by throwing out uh, the, 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 the wheat from the ship. It's, obviously, they're going to go down somewhere. They're, so they're getting rid of all the stuff to make it lighter so it can survive a little bit longer. Look at verse 39. The ship runs aground. Here it is. When day came... The sun had come up as fully, and they haven't seen the sun for a while. They could not recognize the land they were looking at. They're looking at a different side of Malta than they'd normally approach from. Uh, so they didn't recognize it, and they're disoriented. But they did observe a bay with a beach. Today it's called St. Paul's Bay, and it's exactly as described on the island of Malta, uh, as this text describes it. And they resolved to drive the ship into it if they could, and casting off the anchors, uh, they left them in the sea while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind and heading for the beach. But striking a reef offshore where two seas, where two currents met, they ran the vessel aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to broken up by the force of the waves. They get that lateral kind of motion and the breaking up of the vessel. Uh, and watch this. We're not done yet, Zane. You, you think we're in the clear, you know. Boom. We're, we're no longer in the water. You can kind of see the main island. Hopefully we can all get there. But look what happens now. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. We got prisoners. And these prisoners, except for Paul, are obviously bad banditos. These are nasty people. They're up for capital crime, probably to fight gladiators or fight wild animals in Rome. So the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape in the uh, confusion of the aftermath of the crash. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, didn't want to get prisoners started chopping up, because otherwise somebody with a too fast a sword might kill Paul too. And then he, the centurion being in big trouble, kept them from the intention of killing the prisoners and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things floating from the ship. And so it happened that all 276 of them were brought safely to land. Now, you see, if you could get in a time machine and go back and watch them grab stuff or swim, you say there's no miracles here, but the fact they crashed where they did, the soldiers didn't kill the prisoners, that they all actually make it, um, was, I'd say, a Class B miracle at, at, at the very least, for sure. Boom. What do we got? I want you to see a couple things before we close. Number one, um, like Job's friends, a lot of times when something really big hits some people, the first imprint is to say, well, you must have done something really bad, Job. This is why this bad stuff happened to you. Uh, in Acts chapter 27, Paul is in the very center of the will of God. There ain't no doubt about it. At the same time, he's in the middle of a monster storm. Ron, you can be right in the middle of, of, the, of God's will and have all kinds of nonsense swirling around you. You cannot allow... Uh, uh, yourself to doubt that fact. That's just the way it is. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world kind of thing. So why didn't Paul panic? He doesn't panic. He doesn't doubt, pout, drop out, does he? I don't think he panics because he actually believes the fact that when God does not get him out of storms, God will be with him and get him through them. And I'm applying this to us. When God doesn't get us out of storms, he doesn't always... Uh, get us out of storms. A lot of times we're in storms, things we never thought would happen to us. God will be with us. I think Doug could tell you that. 
and God will get us through the storms. Now you might think, well, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can see that. I mean, Daryl had lost his job and, uh, you know, gone through the, uh, uh, unemployment, uh, compensation and, and you really needed a job and boom, he got a job in Lawton and he's doing great. So I can see how God was with him in that storm, that storm of, uh, unemployment and got him through the storm. It resolved nicely. No loose ends. We like it. We can see that. Yeah, I like that. But, you know, I'm a theologian. I think beyond that. And some of you are pragmatic enough to think, well, yeah, that was nice for Daryl. You can see that principle for Daryl. But how about a believer, and let's let's make it horrific, how about a little kid, a 12-year-old little kid, just got baptized, loves the Lord, and he's murdered by some horrible criminal person who molests him. What about that? Was God with that little boy and that? And I hope that doesn't happen to anybody, certainly nobody that we know. I just can't hardly conceive of it happening. But it happens. Can Do you think any little boy who's been molested and killed, is it, has that always been an unbeliever? you think it's possible for a believer to have that happen to them hypothetically, realistically? Do you think that's ever happened in a fallen world? I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. How about a believer who dies of a disease like the doctors can't cure? They do things and they run out of stuff to do and say, hey, we're done. That's all we can do. You know? What about that? Can real believers, I mean, people who love the Lord go through a storm like that? Happens. It happens all the time. How about a believer who's killed in a car wreck and it's not his fault? A distracted or disoriented driver sinfully is driving this, you know, couple thousand pound mass and runs into the van and kills the mom and the kids. And they're all believers. Can that happen? It happens all the time. So how in the world can you tell us, Brad, that when God doesn't get us out of the uh, murder or out of the car wreck, that he's with us and will get us through it? Uh, How can you say that when people get killed and it doesn't happen? Well, let's think. Is there any other scriptural data that would confirm or apply or amplify this principle? And I didn't even get my concordance out. I just kind of started thinking. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you art with me. Thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they're going to comfort me. Right? Uh, what does 2 Corinthians 5 say about the death of a believer? That the believer is to be absent from the body face to face with the person who's with you and gets you through it. In fact, we're told the last enemy to be defeated will be death by the resurrected Christ. Uh, Mike read this. This is one of Homer's favorite passages. A lot of times we'll let Homer read this for the call to worship. And I'm looking at the NIV here. I usually do the uh, New American Standard. But Romans uh, 8, 38 through 39 I'm convinced, this is just a fact, whether you believe it or not, but it'll work better for you if you understand it and believe it, that neither death, he just starts with that one, God will be with you as a believer and get you through even death, that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present, anything in the present, nor the future. Man, you think about the future? You think about the future? You think about this coming November? Does that scare you a little bit? Oh my goodness, yeah. Neither the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else, anything else I didn't mention or anything I didn't categorize here in this list, Paul says, will be able to separate us, believers in Christ. This isn't a universal thing. This is for those who believe in Christ. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even when he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me will never really die. What does James 1 say about storms in the Christian life? Can it all joy when we face various trials or storms? And what does it, what does it command us to do when we do that? It doesn't say doubt, pout, because God says he, you would never go through a storm. Mm-mm. It could never happen. You'd never have a person lose their job if they're a Christian or be murdered if they're a Christian. Have you heard about Christian persecution? You know, genocide in certain regions. All right, distracted drivers can kill Christians just like un- non-Christians, right? Uh, but what does James one say about when we face various trials and issues? It says basically, pray for wisdom. It doesn't say, have enough faith, you command the storm to go away. You see Paul in faith saying, I command you, storm, go away. Now, can Jesus calm a storm? We know that, right? Could Jesus have calmed this storm on the second day instead of going 14 days? How about on the fourth day? He could have made it shorter. He could have eliminated it. He didn't, okay? When you're walking with the Lord, uh, the storms are sanctified, Okay? Now, if you're way out of fellowship, sometimes I, I always say these storms are either blowtorches or barbells, and I'm mixing my metaphors there. I'm going from storms from from storms to barbells and, and, and blowtorches. But, you know, when we get out of fellowship, our priorities kind of cause us to drift from the center of God's will. Sometimes we put a blowtorch to our hiney just to kind of move us back to the center, get our attention. So that can happen. That can happen. That's a technical term, by the way. Uh but also, quite often, our storms are barbells. And at least in theory, when you work your muscles against resistance, what happens to them over time? For me, they got old and scrawny. But in theory, you're supposed to get stronger. You work against resistance to get stronger. So when when God doesn't get us out of storms, no matter how many permanents you go to, sometimes God eliminates storms. And I believe that. And I always pray for that. I pray for that for every surgery. You know, before the surgery, cure us if possible. But if you don't get out of storm, he'll be with you in them, and he'll get you through them. Now, this message this morning is about how Christians like Paul should think and act when God doesn't get them out of storms. Okay, But these principles only apply to us who have received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So, you know, our invitation this morning focuses on the work of Christ. Salvation is not something you do for God. It's something God has done for you. God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says all of us have sinned. We've all break our own standards, much less God's at our worst, right? And that the wages of sin is death, separation from God in a place of punishment, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I like Romans 4 that talks about how you receive Christ through faith, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Saving faith is active, receptive trust. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. It's my fault. I can't fix it by my own good deeds, but you can. I dare to believe you died to pay for my sins, and you rose again from the dead, and I receive you as my Savior. Active, receptive trust. 
being baptized, going to church, going to prayer meeting, praying, doing all these wonderful things we want Christians to do, those are effects, those are fruit of salvation. They're not the cause or the effect of salvation. Right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, please uh, strengthen us so that uh, we would anticipate, not morbidly, but realistically, that in this uh, fallen world, in this uh, decaying physical body, we're all going to face storms, and there are going to be sometimes you don't get us out of storms, but you're going to be with us in the storm and get us through the storm. And sometimes we get through the storm by going through the valley of the shadow. But even there, you're going to be with us. And we pray that we can know that because of the resurrection Christ has promised those, those kind of things to us. Uh, pray for anyone who's here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your Holy Spirit opens their their heart to see and believe, uh, has not trusted Jesus Christ alone. Lord Jesus, I, I can't save myself, and I need a Savior, and I want you to be my Savior. I trust you. I accept you. I receive you as my Savior because of who you are and what you've done uh, for me. And for the rest of us, Father, in addition to helping us individually anticipate and deal with times when the storms don't go away as we rest in your presence and your direction, help us to have that kind of word to share with others, uh, other believers that are uh, discouraged or just overwhelmed by just the uh, psychological, physical, and the spiritual uh, stress of severe suffering. And it just seems like so many of our friends and, and our church family are dealing with some really chronic, painful kind of issues like that. Help us to be uh, uh, agents of, of loving counsel, uh, help us not to be like Job's friend and only condemn, but help us to have the wisdom uh, and, and the empathy to actually help them uh, by sharing your grace and these kind of promises and principles. I uh, Thank you for each one who's here. I pray for a lot of people on the road, and especially our Haiti missionaries that should uh, be leaving about 11 this morning, I believe, from the airport to fly to Haiti and arrive ultimately about 7 so we pray for their, uh, their traveling today, especially. And I know just checking into the new country and going through customs is when it really, the shock really hits. Uh, I ain't in Oklahoma anymore. I am in Haiti <laughs> a long way. And I'm thinking of people like Janice and others that, uh, you know, I don't think she's done anything like this per se. And so I pray that you just give them a special measure of faith and, and courage and uh, wisdom and please guide and direct them in a special way and help them to get off to a, a good start and a safe, safe journey today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.